One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk, the Jewish Chronicle podcast sponsored by the Athena Advisors. I'm Jake Wallace-Simons, editor of the Jewish Chronicle, and in each episode, I'll be joined by a special guest to reflect, debate, and have a bit of a schmooze. This week, I'm delighted to welcome the Times journalist, conservative peer, and Jewish Chronicle columnist, Daniel Finkelstein. We'll be talking about his moving new book, Hitler, Stalin, Mum and Dad, a family memoir of miraculous survival, which is out now published by William Collins. In a recent Jewish Chronicle column about the old books, passports and ocean liner tickets belonging to his grandparents, Lord Finkelstein wrote, You realise how the little things build a bigger picture of life. Daniel Finkelstein, welcome. Let's talk. Thank you. So to kick us off, Danny, if you can set the context of our discussion, why don't you give us an overview of, of your book? Yeah, I'm the son of, of Miriam and Ludwig Finkelstein. And Miriam, my mother, was herself the daughter of a man called Alfred Wiener, who was one of the leaders of German Jews in the 1920s. And my book really begins where he begins, which is with his return from the First World War and his realization that anti-Semitism was beginning to turn violent or have the prospect of turning violent in Germany. And he became one of the first people to say, how dangerous he thought this was, and to begin, as he did in the 1920s, as part of his campaigning work as a somebody who was the general secretary of something called the Zentralverein, the main Jewish communal body, not non-religious communal body, uh, he began to collect everything that the Nazis did or said. And some of the book is about his extraordinary work, how it ended up in the Nuremberg trials, how it helped the Eichmann trials, uh, his attempt to help British intelligence during the war. But obviously, it's about mum and dad, not about grandfather and grandmother. So it is also about what happened to his daughter, my mother, who was born in 1933, and has a story that in some ways parallels a lot of other people, German Jews who went to Holland, assuming that the Holland would become and would remain a neutral state, uh, but found that it wasn't. But in other ways, was very different, because they managed to gain something very odd, Paraguayan citizenship. And this meant that they went to Belsen rather than to Sobibor or Auschwitz from Vesterborg. And part of the book is 
an explanation of my mother's miraculous escape from the Nazis, the fact that she was one of 136 people whose lives were saved by an exchange between the Americans and the Germans. My father's story, I suppose if you think of my mother's story as being a very odd version of what will be very familiar to listeners, the Holocaust story, uh, sadly be familiar, but my mother's story is an extraordinary version of that. My father's story possibly won't be familiar to listeners. And my father was born in Lvov, now known as Lviv. Uh, when he was born, it was Poland. He was born in 1929 to a very prosperous family. My grandfather was known as the, the Iron King of Lvov. Uh, he was, um, a, had a massive uh, iron and steel uh, business and was a civic counselor in the Jewish interest. Um, like my grandfather on the other side, not a Zionist, an, an integrated, uh, Polish Jew, somebody who was proud of his Jewish identity, nevertheless not somebody who wanted there to be a Jewish state elsewhere, felt that he could be a Jew living there in a multi-ethnic Poland, despite all the travails of Jews in Poland. And then uh, the Second World War happens, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact divides Poland and income the Soviets into his part of uh, Poland, and my grandfather is arrested, and my father, a few days after that, is taken to a state collective farm in Kazakhstan. It's known as Siberia, but it was actually on the border of Kazakhstan and Siberia. So I tell the story of his life there, what happened to my grandfather, and the way that the Soviets, in an attempt to erase the Polish elite, nearly starved my father to death and um, made a good effort in trying to kill other members of the family too. Extraordinary story and a, a lot to talk about there. Um, I mean, it seems to me that there are these two amazing streams of history coming, one from your mother via the Nazi uh, horrors and Belsen, and one your father from the, the, the Soviet side and, and, and the gulags meeting together uh, in you, I suppose, and in, in Hendon in London. One of the things that really stood out to me, I kept thinking about when I was reading, was the, the role of fate, or I suppose life and fate, which is not coincidentally a, the, the title of Vasily Grossman's amazing novel, which covers similar ground. Um, and I couldn't stop thinking about the, the, the Thomas Hardy poem about the Titanic, The Convergence of the Twain. Do you know it, where it talks about how the, the ship was being built in Belfast at the same time a hidden hand across the world was forging an iceberg and the two eventually would meet fatefully. And I couldn't stop thinking about that in terms of you alternate chapters, your father's family, your mother's family, them and, and, and the war and the Soviet regime coming closer and closer. And we know what's going to happen, but they can't have done. I was wondering whether it made you reflect on on fate and on, on the hidden hands that sort of forge our stories. Yes, my dad was never a mystical person, but he would often uh, talk quite matter-of-factly about um, how he would have met my mother if the war hadn't happened. He used to talk, say, well, maybe I'd have gone and done a PhD in Berlin and I would have met her there, uh, even though, of course, he never did do a PhD in Berlin or in his part of the world um, until he came here. And my mother was, of course, had to spend most of her youth in Amsterdam rather than in Berlin. So... Um, they did sort of, he did think about fate, but what he didn't know is that my mother's life is saved by a group of Poles, uh, who were, who were brought together by a man called Alexander Wadosh. And Wadosh was the ambassador of the Polish government in exile based in Switzerland, who gets the idea that they can buy passports from the Paraguayan consul. And having done that, that they could use these to give Jews some sort of exchange value. And while I was preparing the book, 
I met somebody at a Wiener Library event at my grandfather's library who said to me, who showed me a school program of his relative and showed that in the same year in school um, was uh, Alexander Vadosh, actually one year apart, Alexander Vadosh and my grandfather, Dolu. In other words, they were rough contemporaries at the same school. They almost certainly met. And this is from the two parts of the story. So the two parts of the story do very lightly touch upon uh, each other. My father didn't know this, but I think he intuited it. Extraordinary. And it, it, I suppose it's one of the ways in which your book feels quite novelesque. It's almost like two plots are unfolding that you know are going to intertwine towards the end and then do. Uh, I was wondering whether in writing the book uh, that feels so much like a novel in some ways, the characters in, the, in it, your, your relatives and ancestors, began to feel like characters to some extent to you. Yeah. Well, so a number of things about that. First of all, they, I definitely um, began to know them in ways that I said this to Tanya Gold in the interview I did for the JC, that I began to know the characters that I, um, that in, in the case of, because I only really knew Lusha, my, my father's mother, the other three grandparents, um, died in one way or another before I was an adult or before I was, you know, old enough to know them. And as a result, I didn't know their characters, know much about them. And I, and I'd begun to discover who they were. But I put a lot of thought into how to, tell the story how to narrate their story first of all because you've got two stories going on at once and not always at the same time you know my mother's arrest is in june 1943 by that point my father's experience in the gulag or in the state collective farm is he's out the other end of that so how could i tell these things in a timely way and um how could i make sure that i didn't throw away things that were going to happen later too early because i already knew them but the reader did not I decided instead of trying to make a, a point about their experiences through some sort of, uh, you know, political tract, I was going to make it instead through, you know, very, very good storytelling. And, you know, the, the uh, I, I'm really happy when someone says, as they have done, that they thought it was moving, and clearly it was. I'm very happy when they say they learned a lot about history. Uh, but the word that I've had back from a few people, which has given me most pleasure, is when they say it's gripping. Because you want a book um, to hold you uh, so that the story uh, is compelling. Um, and if you've got a point to make, and, you know, clearly there is a strong point about uh, the importance of liberty and the law to be made uh, and the resistance of fascism and the dangers of anti-semitism there are lots of political points but those points should all emerge from uh, a really immersive strong story and that was where i put a lot of my effort following on from there i was wondering how much of yourself you could see reflected in the generations before you did you end up looking at yourself like a sort of patchwork of the people who'd come before it's so interesting. So obviously, you know, you know, you learn the physical things. I've got my, uh, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather's ears. <laughs> and I can always see that when I have a haircut. Uh, and, um, my, and I set my glasses off. Uh, but I've got, I, I know because somebody wrote to me and actually said this, that my father used to find it difficult to tell me off because I reminded him physically of his father. So physically, you know, these things. However, what was totally fascinating was to discover, for example, in the case of my maternal grandfather, he took a whole range of positions, which are, ex even when I can see later they were wrong, which are exactly the same as the sort of positions that I would take his relationship with nationality and with, um, 
institutions and with his you know his germanness and his attitude towards the role that truth can play um even when i think it didn't pan out as he hoped their positions i would have taken extraordinarily my grandmother and again something i said to tanya my grandmother um greta did a phd the subject of which was how german free market utopians were not practical free marketeers. This is so close to my own political interest, something that I had no idea that she felt. It was extraordinary to to learn that. And then another thing, just casually, one of Dolu's letters, he says um, to Lusha, you know, you, as you know, I can conciliate people. And that's always been something that I hope to do uh, in the institutions I work for. So um, it was very interesting to to read that too. Has it given you a new perspective on your own children, on looking forward as well as backwards on which parts of them are made up of yourself and from past generations and so on? You know, I quite often joke about the sort of quirky intellectual interests of our children, um, my brothers, one of my brother's sons, and his sort of interest in books, and my own son and his interest in Judaica. And I can see bits of Alfred definitely in them. I, I always puzzled over the fact that I've got two very musical sons despite the fact that I can't play any musical instrument. My wife only played it to a very sort of early stage. Mm. And then in one of the testimonies that my aunt gives, she talks about all the things that the Nazis took from my family, physical things, physical items. And she says, they had to leave the piano, which my mother played every day. Well, I didn't know that. You know, so I didn't realize that she had obviously been accomplished at musically, because that's not something we ever discussed because I didn't know her. So yes, I learned something about our family's outlook definitely and how about the, the the world outside your family i mean this is such a sweeping history that you've given us of, of modern of the last hundred years really did you find yourself seeing resonances and similarities and patterns that you can see replicating in the world around us today or did it feel like we we're in an entirely different world now look so one of the reasons i as i say that i wrote uh, i say right near the beginning of the book that i wrote this book or felt that now was the moment to tell my parents story is that maybe 10 or 15 years ago i was much i had a sort of solid confidence in the fact that we'd learned the lessons of uh, deterioration in our political environment of ignoring the rule of law of um kind of uh, running down all the political uh, everybody who's involved in public life uh, of kind of casually calling people blobs or uh talking about the world economic forum as if it was some great conspiracy and uh, you know and someone like donald trump could never become president of the united states and gradually i've i've lost a bit of that confidence i say at the beginning of the book do i think that what happened to my parents is going to happen to my children no do i think it could well that's a different matter yes i think it could and i maybe 10 15 20 years ago i would have answered that differently so one of the inspirations for telling their story was a change in the political atmosphere but what was important was not then to make the book into a sort of pamphlet about modern politics i just wanted to to tell their story so that people can understand them as human beings and understand what these great ideologies did to human beings to tell it historically so you can understand it's not just told from the perspective of the individuals it's told so that you can understand what happens nationally and how that affects them individually but it's told as a story not as a polemic
And it's interesting that the examples that you gave of people of our age not necessarily having fully learnt the lessons of the past were from the right, really, you know, Trump and so forth. Uh, but let's talk about the left, because the left, in a way, is the more interesting part of the book, in that the Nazi ground is much more familiar to readers in Britain. In fact, some, sometimes I feel too familiar, because it's become the cliché of allo allo, in, in a way. Whereas the, the Soviet oppression of Jews and others, the gulags, is much, much less known for people here. It's very interesting that you said you said they were from the uh, from the right because that wasn't conscious. You know, for example, the uh, attack on things like the World Economic Forum and you know the Trilateral Commission. Those are kind of left wing attacks too. In other words, any theory that the whole of society is being dominated by an elite that has uh, that is conspiring against um, the the real character of the people is a dangerous theory, whether it comes from left or right. But you are making a very important observation. I've often found that when I've expressed concern about uh, right wing extremism or fascism or the Nazis, people are immediately, um, you know, in agreement, and it's a sort of fairly standard view. But my uh, suspicion of the far left, my view that communism is very dangerous is regarded as a little bit um, déclassé and is un- is more unusual. And lots of people are puzzled at the idea mm. that communism and fascism have very have a lot of common traits. And, you know, the way I put it in the book was that the fascists arrested somebody because they were Jewish and happened to be a shop owner, whereas the Soviets arrested people because they were shop owners who happened to be Jews. Uh, but they both were arresting the same people. You know, they both thought that my mum and dad, who were 10, each of them were 10 at the time when it happened, when they were arrested, were part of this dangerous elite. I think there there is a correspondence and uh, between these two worldviews and I think it does come out pretty clearly. I don't spend a lot of time making that point because I think the point makes itself when you read the book. I suppose if you're starving to death in a camp, it doesn't matter whether the guards are German or Russian, you're still starving to death. The stories that that I tell about my father's grandmother and the attitude that that were that was had to him when he survives his the the winter in uh, in Siberia makes clear these a similar kind of insouciance about life and and it's and the loss of life and now a quick word about our sponsor the athena advisors they are a global consulting firm driven by a belief in social justice helping charities and ngos to repair the world through excellence in fundraising Board of trustees, executive teams, and philanthropists turn to the Athena Advisors to help them develop their capabilities, systems, and skills for more effective fundraising. With hubs in London and Washington, and a diverse team of professionals on four continents, they help organizations ramp up their impact and reach. To find out more about how the Athena Advisors drive organizational performance for good, visit theathenaadvisors.com. I wonder if you had any thoughts about why people relate so much more or understand so much more about the Nazis and fascism than communism. I mean, you have public figures now calling themselves luxury communists or communist commentators in a way that people would never call themselves fascists. Do you think it's because we fought the Nazis? Do you think that's it? Or do you think there's a more more profound reason than that? One reason is because the Soviets changed sides, having been on the same side as the Nazis, a very, very important point. Nothing in my book would have happened without the Ribbentrop Molotov Pact. That pact meant not only could Lvov be uh, invaded, um, but it also meant that so could Amsterdam because the Germans knew that they weren't going to be attacked at that point by the Soviets. So um, they were on the same side. And because 
the Soviets then swap sides because not due to their own volition, but because Hitler invades them. Hitler makes that choice for them. Uh, then, of course, we then get then um, we're on their side. They were then won the war, and at Nuremberg, they tried the Nazis along with the rest of the Allies for things that they were guilty of themselves. In fact, sometimes. In one case, specific crime, the Katyn massacre, they actually tried to indict them that even though they'd done that themselves. Uh, but, but also they were guilty of every category in the indictment. Very early on in writing the book, I opened a folder here in, in my study that my parents had left me. And the first thing that came out of it was actually the indictment, which my grandfather had, had obtained because of his role in the Nuremberg trial, the indictment of the Nuremberg defendants. And I noted in it that they were all things that the Soviets were guilty of. I think that's one reason. To be fair, the other reason is that they all think there's some sort of socialism that isn't what the Soviets did. I don't know what that is, and I've never been able to understand it. So my, I always have this thing, which I, uh, going slightly off topic, but I call it the Twix test, which mm. is um, under socialism, who wh- who works in the human resources department of the people who make the ink on Twix wrappers. What I'm trying <laughs> to do is to is to say, econ- economics is very complicated. Economies are very complicated, and there are so many layers of jobs. Uh, if it's natural that if you are going to try to define what everyone does, you're going to end up creating a totalitarian dictatorship. And if you don't tell everyone what to do, you won't get anyone working in the human resources department and people who make the ink on Twix wrappers. Sometimes people write back to me and say, we don't need to have Twix. And I think that's a response that speaks for itself, because that was also what happened to my dad. They felt we didn't need to have Twix. You mentioned your grandfather just then in the context of the Nuremberg trials, and he is the one who was non-Zionist, isn't he, or perhaps anti-Zionist? Both my grandparents had the same view, which was they felt, you know. But let's take my let's take Alfred. You know, Dolu was a businessman, and he had this view definitely. But I think Alfred was a political activist, and so and and he expressed his view in in best-selling books. So let's deal with him. He, his view was, I'm a German Jew. Uh, I, he was, uh, he'd, he'd spent a lot of his youth in Palestine. He believed very strongly in a homeland for Jews in Palestine, uh, loved the Middle East in general, but he felt that Israel or Palestine as it was then was no solution to the problem of Jews. That, that had to be solved where Jews lived. He lived in Berlin. He didn't want to live uh, in Palestine for all that. He had a great affection for it. He also had a concern that there were people living there already and that it would be very difficult to live there. I think he had a dialogue with the Zionists where he said, we don't want to live there. And they said, if we stay here, we're going to die. And if he said, and he would reply, well, if we go there, there won't be enough space for everyone and uh, we won't be able to, we won't be able to thrive economically. It's a, it's a utopian illusion. Uh, they had this dialogue and in the end, there was true to both of what they had to say which is alpha was right it's very difficult to get peace in israel uh with the neighbors that exist and they were right if he stayed there he got killed and that's the great tragedy for jewish people and it's brought out very much in the tragedy of my grandfather's life he he by the way probably wouldn't have seen you use that word to describe his life but i think you know if you read it i think it's a reasonable word to use he was also involved in debunking the protocols of the elders of Zion. And one aspect of that that people often aren't aware of is its Zionist aspect, that it's, it purported to be falsely a record of a plot that was hatched at the first Zionist Congress. Um, so it's interesting, there's that touch point as well. 
I mean, it's very interesting. I, I hadn't appreciated until I studied this how much of the dialogue that we have in this country about Israel is an echo of the protocols of the elders of Zion, the idea that beyond perfectly legitimate criticism of Israel, and even beyond arguments that Israel ought not to exist, which happen, there is another level of argument, which is Zionism uh, is a world-occupying force. And this is straightforwardly the idea behind the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And Alfred could see that this document was uh, spreading everywhere, um, that you could get it in every kiosk in Bern, that it had been spread particularly by, by the way, by Henry Ford, the card manufacturer who'd spread it in, in the United States, but also around the world in, in pamphlet form. And he then sets about doing what he does, does several times in his career, which is suing Nazis or fascists in, in law courts using his favoured method, which was archival proof. And there are both triumphs and problems with it. You know, in the end, obviously, we're still living with that document. Uh, however, it certainly helps that the court so early on ruled that it was a forgery and, and an alternative story of its provenance was established. And as readers of the book will discover, there were also very important personal reasons why the uh, burn trial was important to my family. But I won't spoil the plot. And um, has writing the book, did it make you feel more of a Zionist or less of a Zionist or neither. It only altered my view. I think it, it did bring home to me that I think I would have taken Alfred's side of that argument at the time, which clearly wasn't right. I mean, ultimately, the people who said we need to have a state in Palestine, they were right. And later in the book, um, my family is trying very hard to get themselves to Palestine, not successfully, but they, they, you know, they would have loved the opportunity to do that. So, so I think it's had more of an impact on my sort of certainty about my opinions than it has on my view of Israel. It's obviously is Jamaica. It's interesting to me. Definitely my family's view of Israel is more of an instrumental one than a romantic one. So some families I know sort of think of themselves as a little bit Tel Avivians. You know, I've never thought of myself like that. And I learned why. There are so many poignant moments in the book and movie moments and, and gripping moments, as you, as you said earlier. If there was one that really stood out to you as being the most harrowing or difficult thing to, to write and experience, what, what would it be? So it, it's a different one for me than it will be for the readers. And I probably won't say what the ones for the readers will be because I want them to discover it for themselves. But for me, I, it's clear what it was. I've always known that my uh, great aunt and um, my um, great uncle and my mother's first cousin, Fritz, died in Sobibor. Uh, I've also known that people don't talk much about Sobibor because while many people survived in Auschwitz just because they were on the labour side and they saw what happened, um, as well as people dying, the, the, the average um, time spent in Sobibor was three hours. I knew that I'd have to study that in order to discover exactly what happened when they died and be able to tell the story of what happened to them. But uh, when I did, it was the only time where I thought, well, I needed to know that. I'd have to write it down, but I wish I didn't know it. Towards the end of your book, you really get the sense that your parents were happy. They managed in some way to exercise the generational trauma and it seems not pass it on. Is, is that true? Is it as simple as that? Yes, it is true. And it's remarkable that and I, and I, I even say at the beginning of the book, it's a bit of a puzzle for me. I'm not sure I've solved the puzzle completely. I suppose it's something to do with their disposition. It's maybe to do with the nature of their experiences. It was certainly possibly to do with the toughness of 
Lusha and um you know and Greta and Alfred and Dolly you know so it's a little bit to do with all those things but we they were determined that they were going to be more than survivors Harry Borden does this amazing book of pictures of survivors holocaust survivors and I asked my mother to write a few lines to go with it and she says I haven't got the exact words but it's something like I'm I'm a, a mother and a and a wife and a teacher and a person first, and only then a survivor. And uh, that was how she was determined. She didn't want Hitler, you know, using it in the crew base, she didn't want Hitler to spoil her life, and neither did Dad. And they certainly didn't want it to spoil ours. That they, they would have regarded that as a total defeat if they were to bring that to us. But it's quite, you know, when you read what happens to them, it's quite a strong, you know, strong character. Speaks highly of their characters that they were able to do that. There's no doubt about it. I got an increased impression of that. Do you think it was difficult for them to do that? I never got the impression that it was, actually. I never got the impression that they were struggling hard to do that at all. Um, but maybe that's just a bit of lack of imagination. I don't, I don't think, I think it'd be interesting to ask my siblings whether they felt that it was hard for them, but I don't think so. I think they just decided they were going to look to the future and they weren't going to be. And I once asked my dad, he never went back to Lvov, and I said to him, you know, why did you not do that? And he said, because the property's there and I'm here and that's better. And that was just his way. We talked earlier about the traits that you see in yourself that have come from previous generations and not just traits, but political views and tastes and inclinations and, and temperaments. It's interesting that what you're saying wasn't passed through was the trauma. Yeah. Uh, it is interesting, and I, and, and I think, um, but I, you know, but I think that's partly because Alfred believed very strongly in being part of the country that he was in, uh, being a proper citizen and taking part in its public life. And I think my mum wanted that for us, and then we've taken that on. And um, so, yes, I think in that way, it did, you know, they, their experience did pass on to us. I suppose it's sort of ironic in a way that you're looking back, as you just said, into the past and seeing that you would probably have been like him, non-Zionist or anti-Zionist, wanting to be more rooted in the country that you are. You think that was, in retrospect, perhaps not right. And yet that same instinct is beneficial now in causing him and your family to let go of the past and be more rooted in the present. Yeah, exactly. Lots of things have, you know, that don't cut in one direction. And that's certainly, you know, part of it. Um, you can, you know, you know, for another thing in the book, you, when you read the book, you, you get the view definitely that Alfred, um, put his work ahead of being an attentive part, the member of the family. My, my mother really loved him and she would never have had any criticism of him, even the ones that I make, one that I'm making, I suppose. But, you know, but then on the other hand, you look at what he achieved and what he did and you think he was right. He made the right decision. So everything has, you know, pluses and minuses effectively. Fascinating. Well, I can't recommend recommend the book highly enough. It's called Hitler, Stalin, Mum and Dad, a family memoir of miraculous survival. It's out now, published by William Collins. Danny Finkelstein, thank you so much. Before I let you go, it's traditional to ask if you happen to have a kvetch of the week, something to get off your chest. Yeah, I'm like really not a big kvetching individual, but I, you know, as you only because you've asked me, I it would be great if the pinner car park ticket machine downstairs uh, and upstairs both worked at the same time wouldn't it <laughs> it's a niche scratch it's a niche scratch Danny thank you for sharing it anyway Danny Fickelstein thank you so much thank you it's a pleasure you've been listening to Let's Talk the Jewish Chronicle podcast sponsored by the Athena Advisors with me Jake Wallace-Simons editor of the Jewish Chronicle 
If you haven't subscribed, you can do so on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening, and see you next time.